It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Welcome back to Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. Every single one of us has felt disillusioned at work at one time or another. But sometimes that disillusionment drags on and on, slouching towards who knows where. And according to a worldwide Gallup poll, only 15% of the world's 1 billion full-time workers feel engaged at work. And that means a whopping 85% of us are disengaged, disgruntled, or dissatisfied. So how to turn this around? Well, who better to ask than organizational psychologist extraordinaire Adam Grant. Adam is an expert on how we can find motivation and meaning and lead more generous and creative lives. As a popular TED speaker and the New York Times bestselling author of three books that have sold over a million copies, he's helped Google, the NBA, and the U.S. Army improve life at work. Adam has been Wharton's top-rated professor for six straight years and has been recognized as one of Fortune's 40 Under 40 and the world's 10 most influential management thinkers. He is also a former magician and junior Olympic springboard diver. As if that weren't enough, Adam recently started the second season of his excellent podcast, Work Life, and I'm delighted to talk to him today. So Adam Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ellen. Happy to be here. Yay. And I love how you describe your career, which is, uh, as you say on the podcast, studying how to make work not suck. And to that end, on Work Life, you talk about creativity with the writers of The Daily Show or how to get better at receiving criticism at a radically transparent company, Bridgewater, which also happens to be the world's biggest hedge fund and a lot more. So today, I want to talk with you about a work problem that I am willing to bet has affected you know, not just postal workers, but 100% of us, which is disgruntlement. Because we've all had those times at work where we don't like what we're doing, or we don't like the people we work with, or maybe the direction we're headed. So what do we do to turn around unhappiness at work besides indulging in fantasies of quitting in a blaze of glory? <laughs> well, Ellen, you're the clinical psychologist, so I feel like <laughs> I feel like I should punt this one to you, actually. Well, let's let's see what you have to say first. I guess it depends on how disgruntled people get, sure. right? So look, I think that the first thing I would say is that it's not always a bad thing to have disgruntled people around you. One of my favorite things that I've done uh, as part of work life uh, for the first episode of season two is uh, I got to spend a bunch of time at Pixar hmm. uh, with uh, the Oscar-winning director Brad Bird and uh, the team that made The Incredibles and the sequel with him. And what was so interesting there is uh, Brad came in as this outside director and he's just made a big flop. He's been fired a couple times in his career already. And he wants to kind of reinvent the way that, that Pixar makes animated films. And there's not always an appetite for reinvention when your first three movies have been a, just amazing hits. And so Brad, long story short, says, all right, I want to shake things up. I want all of the black sheep. 
Give me the people who are frustrated, who are disgruntled, who have one foot out the door. And with those people, he ends up making Incredibles into Pixar's biggest hit yet. The lesson from that, which is backed up by some really cool research, is when people are frustrated, it's a signal that they're blocked from achieving a goal. Hmm. It could be because of red tape in the office. It might be because uh, their superiors are not listening to them because their ideas are a little bit unconventional or outside the box. Uh, it might be because the way they express their ideas uh, is threatening to others. And, you know, people are like, hey, stop rocking the boat. You know, <laughs> stay in your lane. Yeah. And so what Brad did was he said, you know what? I, I think the people who are disgruntled, if we listen to them, they might become motivated to find creative solutions to the problems they've identified. And they ended up trying things that nobody else at Pixar had considered, which was really important in their case because The Incredibles was their first movie that was going to be a whole family of humans, which were really hard to animate using, uh, mm. using CG. So that for me is the first thing is to say, look, frustration can be a barometer, right? It's a signal that something is not working. And instead of running away from that, if you pay attention to it, identifying problems is the first step toward coming up with creative ideas. So, okay, I hear that, you know, give me your disgruntled, give me your tired, your poor, your, you know, politically disaffected. But speaking from my own experience, I know that when I'm feeling dissatisfied at work, whether from politics or red tape or whatever, my work ethic just gets drained. It feels like roto-rooted. And so <laughs> tell me about either with the Pixar story or something else, like if we're in a place where we are disgruntled, I imagine that for some of us, we'd be ready to charge out of the gate, but for others, yeah. we'd be feeling flat. So how do we rally? Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously the first thing is to try to figure out what the source of, of the frustration is. Sure. And, and then what can you do about it is the next question. So we have a couple decades of research now that have followed from the, the classic Hirschman book on, on exit voice and loyalty. The framework has been updated now to say, look, when, when you're dissatisfied, you only have four options. And this is true whether you're in a job or a marriage or a country where you're objecting to the government. You can exit, right? You can leave. You can exercise voice, which is to speak up and try to improve it. You could be loyal and say, you know what? I, I believe in this workplace or this boss or the ideals of this country or the person I chose to marry enough that I'm just going to suck it up and, you know, try to do a good job anyway. And change it from the inside? Or is that... Is that... Um, that, would, that would probably move more into the voice, voice. direction. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I think basically loyalty is saying, look, I'm going to grit my teeth and bear it. Got it. I'm going to white knuckle it. I understand. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. And then the, the last option, which a lot of people choose, uh, which you might have been alluding to, is neglect. Mm. Where you say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull an office space and I'm just going <laughs> to do the bare minimum not to get fired. PC load letter. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I really think those uh, TPS reports need a few extra cover sheets. Um, so I think just knowing those, those four responses are options is helpful. And the pattern you see typically is people will go to voice under two conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, first, they have to care about the organization. And second, they have to believe that they have some influencer say. Mm. And when, when either of those conditions is violated, they'll, they'll start to move toward one of the other boxes. And so I think your, your first opportunity then is to say, okay, you know, do I care about the organization? If you're there, I hope you do. Sure. Um, do, do I have control? You know, does my voice matter? I think people think about that in, in way too general terms. So I don't think it's true that anybody's voice just matters or doesn't. It all depends on the audience that you speak to. And so the first thing I would tell you to do if you got dissatisfied is go to three or four people in the organization 
who you know you think are position in positions of power or credibility, and you ask them for advice. You say, "Look, here's here's what I'm frustrated with. Uh, what suggestions do you have for me?" And a few things happen according to the data on this. One, those people are likely to feel flattered. Mm-hmm. Right? We love to be asked for we advice. We love to be asked for advice, yes. And I like how you frame it as you have to ask them for advice as opposed to going to them with belly aching. I think that's yes. a really important difference. Yeah, nobody wants to just hear you complaining and whining and right, venting. Right, And And also, if you'd gone and asked for help, it seems like a burden, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Do I want to help you? I don't know. It's a lot of work. Save my Do career. I... Right, right. Yeah, exactly. But advice, yeah, it's just a few words. I can, yes. I can make time for that. Yes. And so... There's um, some new research showing that the people who seek advice are actually judged as more competent because, you know, look, like I, you, you must be a genius. You, you knew to come to me. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and then the other part of that is when you ask someone for advice, you force them to take your perspective, to walk in your shoes. Mm. And so they're more likely to think about why that source of frustration for you might affect other people, why it might be a big problem for the workplace. And then sometimes they'll actually step up and become your advocate. And even if they don't, you can gather their suggestions. And then the hope is if you reach enough people, you find some people who, who either give you good ideas or you build a coalition of people who are willing to begin to make the change you want to see a reality. That makes total sense. Okay, so now I've, I have another question about that. So you mentioned you need to feel like you have some say, like you need to have a, a voice and then to have someone to go to who hopefully will acknowledge you, maybe even become your champion or a mentor. But what about if you are doing good work, you're kind of, you're chugging along, but you feel unacknowledged. Can you speak to how feeling unappreciated impacts someone at work or you know, maybe even in their personal life? You know, ungrateful children, that never happens, but you know, can, can <laughs> you talk, never, can you talk about how, you know, feeling underappreciated impacts us, uh, particularly at work? Yeah, it's a huge problem. I actually started studying this in the workplace, uh, I guess back in 15 years ago now. Mm. I was doing some experiments at a call center that was uh, that was at a university. So the callers were contacting alums and trying to get them to to make donations. Mm-hmm. And I walked in, and one of the callers had posted a sign on the wall, and it said, "Doing a good job here is like wetting your pants in a dark suit. Hmm. You get a warm feeling, but <laughs> no one else notices." Okay. <laughs> wow. All right, and, and they put that on the wall, like literally on the wall. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, what what a signal that that people don't feel appreciated. That's not even uh, passive aggressive. That's just aggressive now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it, it was topped only by the sign at an Air Force base uh, that I came across, which said it was a chef who had posted it. It said, uh, "Defending freedom, one pancake at a time." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, you know, enter Dilbert. But yes, which is a documentary. We, we, yes. <laughs> yeah, which. Um, but with the fundraising callers, uh, what dawned on me was that the callers had no idea where the money they raised was going. Hmm. And so it turned out one of the, the big places that the money went was to fund student scholarships. Hmm. So I designed a little experiment and uh, just randomly assigned a third of the callers to meet one scholarship student and you know, hmm. have him tell a story about how he couldn't afford to come to school. He was able to get this need-based scholarship. And you know, because of that, it's, it's really changed his life. And that was basically an expression of gratitude. And then there was a a second group of callers who got to read a letter from him, but not come face to face with him. And a third group was a pure control group that got nothing. And that first group, the five minute interaction with one scholarship student, increased their weekly minutes on the phone by 142%. Wow. And their their weekly revenue by 171%. Amazing. 
There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Are you tired of the constant battle with anxiety and panic? I've got a podcast that I think you'll love. It's called The Anxiety Coaches Podcast, where the host, Gina, gives you your weekly dose of tranquility and inspiration. Two new episodes drop weekly, packed with practical tips and lifestyle changes to help you calm that racing heart and bring peace back into your life. So if you're ready to bid farewell to sleepless nights and constant worry, tune into the Anxiety Coaches podcast and embark on a journey towards lasting calmness and a life free from anxiety's grip. Remember, it's not just a podcast, it's a lifeline. Join Gina on the Anxiety Coaches podcast and let her soothing words be the balm your nervous system needs. Listen in and start your path to healing today. The Anxiety Coaches Podcast.com because healing begins the first time you listen. So the take home there is to turn unappreciation or underappreciation around. We have to make meaning out of our work. We have to feel like we're having an impact, that there is some kind of appreciation. What if we don't have access to the people that we're serving? Like, I'm, I'm lucky as a psychologist that I get to sit face to face with the people that I serve. But what if, what if we don't have that? What if we are sequestered away in an office or otherwise, you know, don't have direct contact with the people that we work, you know, quote unquote, for? I love that you asked that because that was actually the next the next challenge ah. that we tackled. Uh, <laughs> you know, it also like, it takes a lot of time to bring in your customer, sure. your client, or your end user. And so, uh, you know, even if you have one, you can't always meet them day to day. So one of the, the studies that, that Jane Dutton and I ended up running uh, with another group of fundraisers was we had them keep a journal. Hmm. And there, there, I'm sure you've seen a lot of research on gratitude journaling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, you know, you're supposed to write down the things you appreciate. And we randomly assigned a group of callers to do that, and it had no effect on their effort or motivation whatsoever. I'm just spitballing here, but I'm guessing they had they were grateful for things that had nothing to do with their work, or like they were grateful for good coffee, or or you know, a good, a <laughs> birthday card from their grandmother, or well, you tell me what, how, why, why, why did so that interestingly happen? when we when we uh, when we studied their journals, um, they found these real things to be grateful for, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm grateful that I have a job yeah. that gives me a paycheck that. You know, I'm able to be part of a workplace where I have some great friends. I like my boss. You know, a lot of the things you'd want to hear. What we realized, though, was that as much as it can boost your happiness to be grateful, when it comes to motivation, gratitude is, is often a passive emotion. Oh, interesting. Right? It's okay. like, hey, I'm grateful that I have received something from someone else. Yes. And so we, we wondered about putting people in a more active mindset. And so we had them write a different kind of journal, which was a contribution journal. Ah, okay. I see. So you think about all the ways that you've helped others at work and what impact you've had. And we found that, that just three to four days of journaling for a few minutes about your contribution significantly increased your motivation and how hard you worked. 
Oh, interesting. That's like a, a close cousin to how we treat depression in terms of is it? like behavioral activation and reflecting on not just the things that went wrong, but the things that went right and the things that you had agency over and that you made happen. Yes. Like to kind of wallow in a good way, you know, in the things that you had, again, agency over. So, oh, that's so interesting. Okay. Okay. Very yeah. Cool. So I think, you know, at some level, like you, you don't want to be a passive receiver. You want to be an active giver. And when I reflect, okay, maybe I had a tough week at work. But, you know, I did make a difference for these three people that does restore my confidence and, and, you know, kind of give me conviction that I can make a difference tomorrow. And I think a simple way that anybody could apply this is just to say, okay, you know, think about if your job didn't exist, who would be worse off? Hmm. And whoever those people are that come to mind, those are the people that give your job meaning. And you want to think about either what you already contribute to them or how you can have more impact on them. Okay, so you've started to answer the next question, which was how might this apply to life outside the workplace? Because I can think, like, say a stay-at-home parent might think, well, you know, this doesn't apply to me, like, I don't have an office job or whatever. But it sounds like that absolutely that they work for their children or their community or the school or whatever, like, however they spend their time and that those are their, you know, quote-unquote customers. And so can you riff on that? Like, how, how else might this advice apply to life outside the workplace? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, my my wife and I have had this conversation with our kids. One of the things we've done is occasionally, you know, you like you have the dinner table conversation about, okay, you know, what are the things that you're grateful for? Mm-hmm. And we've shifted it to what's something you did this week that helped somebody else. Mm. And what I love about this is I feel like it corrects a bias that most parents have, which is we say there are two things we want for our kids. We want them to be happy and we want them to be generous. But when you ask our kids, and this isn't just me, right, parents in the U.S., when you ask kids what they think their parents care about the most, they say success and achievement. Oh, wow. It gets lost in translation, clearly. Yeah. Wow. And I think some of it is just we pay attention to what we measure. And so, you know, you get a report card or a grade on a test Uh, and you spend all your time talking with your kids about how well they're doing in school. And so having this conversation about what's something you did that helps somebody else, I think, is a great way to instill these values of concern for others. But it also, interestingly, allows us to get feedback on, okay, here are the things that I think maybe I did this week that helped our family. What do you think of those? Hmm. And then, you know, I learned from our kids, what are the things that they really appreciated? Oh, so interesting. Okay, so by asking the question, like, what did you do this week that helped somebody? Not, you know, not giving a grade is not equivalent to the report card, you know, that measures success and achievement academically, but you begin to monitor altruism or generosity or some other, you know, choose your word here. And so by monitoring it, your kids start to pay attention to it. Okay, so that makes sense. And then also, as a bonus, you get feedback. They're, they become active participants in this conversation. And so when you say, you know, how, well, here, maybe you can clarify this for me. Like, what do you think I did that helped or? Exactly. Yep. Here's the thing that I think I, you know, I did for the family. And like, what, our kids are like, what, that, really? That, we didn't like that at all. Oh, okay. So I, you know, I cooked this particular fancy dinner for an hour and a half. And like, that seems like a contribution to maybe an adult. But then the kids are like, I don't care. I just wanted to get pizza. And so then that exposes the mismatch. It does. And I guess an example from us is one of the things I mentioned one day was, oh, I, you know, I took out the garbage and that way our garage doesn't stink. And (laughs) it's like, and it's hopefully something that we need done. And our oldest actually said, well, I want to do that. Oh, interesting. I was like, oh, cool. Family garbage morning. Yes. (laughs) Here it comes. Okay. Uh, But for some reason, they really enjoy it. Hmm. 
Sounds so now good. we do it together sometimes. Right. All right. I'm going to try that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want to take us back to work and ask one more question about, about that. So let's talk about timing. Is there an optimal time to turn things around at work? If we're disgruntled, you know, when do we strike? How do we know if it's too soon or too late? Really interesting. I think that most people wait too long. Hmm. So there's a whole body of research on regret, which you're probably familiar with uh, and has really, really affected my thinking. Uh, the, the basic finding is that in the moment, we're afraid of, of the errors of commission, mm-hmm. right? So if I leave my job or if I try to convince my supervisor to give me new responsibilities, what if I make a mistake and this might ruin my career? But in the long run, our biggest regrets are less often the things that we did. They're more often the things we didn't do. The road not taken. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We, we tend to, to regret the, the omissions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's useful to keep that in mind and say, look, you know, because of that bias, uh, we're probably too risk averse when it comes to making career transitions, when it comes to, you know, trying to, to shake things up in our own work lives. And what we need to do is a little bit of mental time travel. And say, okay, in the past, which direction have I erred in? You know, have I jumped the gun or have Mm. I stuck around too long? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, most people will find that their pattern is, gosh, I I stuck around too long. Yeah, yeah, that's me. Sure, sure. So that that creates the courage to to move on a little sooner this time. And then the other thing you can do is uh, you can travel forward in time, not just backward. And say, okay, you know, in 10, 20 years, what am I going to regret more? Hmm. Uh, you know, kind of sticking around and, and seeing if this improves or, you know, breaking free and trying something new. And, you know, most people realize when they take the long view, hey, you know what? I'm, uh, I, I don't want to be the person who always wonders what might have been if I had just tried something fresh. Right. Yeah. I, I don't want to have regrets. Absolutely. So, okay, so my last question. So this is slightly off topic, and I I admit I'm indulging in my own pure curiosity, but I have seen a trend where I keep seeing studies and articles about creativity. This is a white hot topic. But so for me, at least, it's one of those concepts that means different things to different people. How do you define creativity? How do we measure it? And how do we fuel it? Oh, yeah. So the define and measure are fun. Uh, so there's there's pretty good consensus now in the applied psychology world that creativity is producing ideas that are novel and useful. And so the, the novel means they have to be different from what's existed before in the domain, right? And then the useful is they have to solve a problem or meet some agreed upon standard of excellence. Okay. And so the, the only way to judge that then is to have uh, experts do ratings, right? And they may not be able to define creativity, but they know it when they see it. It's like jazz or porn. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, I think that's probably the, the best case scenario that we have, right? Okay. And one, one of the things, um, I have a former student, Justin Berg, who's done a really, really interesting set of studies on this. What he shows is that oftentimes managers are terrible judges of creative ideas. Mm. The more original an idea is, the more managers are likely to reject it uh, because they tend to compare new ideas to what's worked in the past. Oh, it's too far afield. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so they get stuck in these templates like uh, like the NBC executives who rejected Seinfeld because ah. it was a show about nothing. Right. Okay. And it's like it actually took a guy who didn't even work in sitcoms from the variety and specials department to say, um, yeah, you're right. Like this breaks all the rules of sitcoms. Uh, you know, I, I know you're supposed to identify with, with with at least one character and you hate all of them. I know the plot lines are supposed to go somewhere, but you know what? It made me laugh. Mm -hmm. And isn't that what a sitcom is supposed to do? Right. 
it's the people with broad experience, not deep experience, who are often more open to original ideas. Oh, interesting. Okay. And it's also the creative peers uh, who are looking for reasons to say, huh, that's interesting, as opposed to reasons to say no. Huh. Okay. And so just going back to what you said before in terms of definition and that it has to be useful. So with the example of Seinfeld, it doesn't have to be something like that's like an app or like a disrupted industry. Like it could be something that just makes us laugh. And that is usefulness in in and of itself. Yeah, in the domain. So it it has to accomplish whatever the idea was set out to accomplish. Okay. So like a work of fiction, if it transports us to another place, then that's that's it's fulfilled its usefulness. Bingo. Got it. Okay. And then the last part is, so how do we fan the flames like of our own creativity? I know that's a huge know. question. Yeah. Oh my just, gosh. So, I, yeah. Yeah. I just study this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I've, I've, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what we actually know about how to become more creative. And I think that really the only valid advice that I could give is if you want to have more creative ideas, you actually should develop more bad ideas. Huh. Okay. Walk, walk me through that. There's a bunch of research. Uh, some of my favorite studies are of classical composers and inventors. Hmm. Uh, but you can also see it with scientists. Uh, all one all of the best... kooky people in their own way. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. They have their own form of creativity. Yes, yes. Um, one of the best predictors of lifetime creative achievement is just the, the total volume of work that you produce. Huh. And what, what happens is you see that with, um, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach, they actually had often three to four times as many total compositions uh, over their careers as their peers. And that meant that they had more bad ideas, but they also stumbled onto more good ideas. Uh, I think the mistake that too many of us make is we either fall in love with our first idea yes, yes. and refine that to perfection, uh, or we give up after the first few ideas because we, we think we've run out of steam. And the reality is often your first ideas are the most conventional because you know, like the reason you thought of them first is they were pretty obvious. And sometimes you have to rule that out in order to get to the more original. Okay. That makes sense. Very good. This has been really fantastic. I learned a lot. It's a delight to talk to you. So just thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Alan. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist, the author of three New York Times bestsellers, and the host of the podcast Work Life. The show takes you inside some of the world's most unusual workplaces to discover the keys to better work. You'll never see your job the same way again. Season two launched a couple of weeks ago, so check it out, subscribe, and I dare you not to binge listen to catch up on all the great episodes. Savvy Psychologist is audio engineered by Steve Rickyberg and edited by Beata Santora. As always, Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. For all things social anxiety, check out my book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. And if you've already read it, please consider leaving a review on Amazon because it really does help others find the book. Regardless, thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to seeing you next week for a happier, healthier mind. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. 
That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Are you tired of the constant battle with anxiety and panic? I've got a podcast that I think you'll love. It's called the Anxiety Coaches Podcast, where the host, Gina, gives you your weekly dose of tranquility and inspiration. Two new episodes drop weekly, packed with practical tips and lifestyle changes to help you calm that racing heart and bring peace back into your life. So if you're ready to bid farewell to sleepless nights and constant worry, tune into the Anxiety Coaches Podcast and embark on a journey towards lasting calmness and a life free from anxiety's grip. Remember, it's not just a podcast, it's a lifeline. Join Gina on the Anxiety Coaches podcast and let her soothing words be the balm your nervous system needs. Listen in and start your path to healing today. The Anxiety Coaches because healing begins the first time you listen.